You're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Faye Parks. Thank you for joining us. We're giving our volunteers the night off to celebrate the holiday. Instead of our usual programming, we're putting the spotlight on some of this year's stories on food. Around the country, folks are sitting at the dinner table with friends and family. This year, the Goodman Community Center continued their basket drive program, helping Dane County families in need put together a Thanksgiving meal. They planned to distribute 4,000 food baskets to families across the county, relying on members of the community who donated thousands of cans of cranberry sauce and thousands of frozen turkeys. WORT's Thursday reporter, Sarah Gabler, has the story on this year's basket drive. Every year, the Goodman Community Center distributes thousands of turkeys, boxes of mac and cheese, and pumpkin pie as part of their Thanksgiving basket drive. The drive draws together people across Dane County, from neighborhood groups that organize food drives to cyclists who participate in Cranksgiving, a national food drive on wheels. Francesca Frisk, the assistant director of Goodman Center's food pantry, attests that their annual drive is a special event. We couldn't do this event without the community. We'll have almost 700 volunteers come and help out. We'll have dozens and dozens of food drives happening throughout the community. It just really is heartwarming to see how much Madison and greater Dane County comes together to kind of respond to this need every year. Four years ago, they served 3,500 families, and since then, the number has grown to 4,000. Those 4,000 baskets support roughly 25,000 people, including 10,000 children. The COVID pandemic more than likely caused that growth. In addition, local food pantries report surging demand for assistance in the wake of cuts to the federal food stamp program known as SNAP. Nationally, over 30 million people experienced a cut or elimination of SNAP benefits when the COVID extensions ended in February. Amy Hoag, Goodman Center's Director of Communications, says that they would like to serve more families in need, but they are currently at capacity. This year, we ended up having to close registration a couple of days early because of the unprecedented need in the community. You know, we're just seeing in our food pantry that the demand is up. Folks are really struggling and need the help. Hoag says that folks come from all over Dane County to pick up Thanksgiving baskets. Some families use the Goodman Food Pantry year-round, but others need support putting on the special and expensive meal. And when it comes to this holiday meal, it's just not in the budget, because as you would know, you know, these foods are not things you generally have in the house. They cost more. It's generally a, a bigger to do than what you would do on a weeknight dinner. So um, folks who maybe aren't in need of those services on a day-to-day basis do need help at this special time of year. Last year, the Goodman Center ran out of some items the weekend before Thanksgiving. Hoag says that Madisonians showed up to help fill in the gaps. So we put out a call to the community to help us out, and my goodness, did the community turn out. It was amazing. Uh, You know, we had hundreds of people who came to donate food throughout the day on Sunday. It's easy to get involved, says Hoag. Anyone can visit GoodmanCenter.org. On our website, we have an outline of the ways to get involved. A great thing to do uh, this week and into next week would be to host a food drive. Each basket will contain a frozen turkey, veggies, milk, eggs, butter, stuffing, cranberry sauce, gravy, mac and cheese, cooking oil, ice cream, dinner rolls, and a pumpkin pie. If you're picking up extra groceries to donate, be sure to consult the list of needed items on the Goodman Center's website. You can also give a monetary donation online. Monetary donations help Goodman Center staff fill in any gaps, says Hoag, who last year made a last-minute trip to gather supplies. I personally went to uh, Aldi on the east side and bought all of their cooking oil that they had. I just took it all, (laughs) filled up my car. 
For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. The City of Madison runs a grant program that provides funding to groups and individuals who work to combat food insecurity. A recent evaluation of that program found that those funds generally go to hide-need areas on Madison's north and south sides. WORT reporter Diego Alegria has the details on that assessment. The Madison Seed Grant Program distributes $50,000 a year to assist Madison groups and individuals who are working on improving the local food system. The program, which began in 2014, aims to increase access to healthy, local, and culturally relevant food while combating food waste and assisting local growers. It is a small grant program from the city to usually nonprofits or residents, individuals who are interested in food system projects. And that can be a lot of different things, whether production of food or provision of food or community meals, that type of thing. That's Nicholas Leet, chair of the Madison Food Policy Council, which administers funding for the program. He's also the Garden's network manager for Rooted, a Dane County nonprofit that runs several community gardens and is dedicated to supporting local growers. In 2020, Rooted received a seed grant and used it to create a free subscription vegetable box program during the pandemic. This initiative served around 75 families on the north side through various community centers. For LEAD, the seed grant was the starting point in an ongoing food system project. It was a one-time program, but we have, since then, we've been able to secure funds from various other sources to continue that program. Um, and I think that's also one of the main goals of the seed grant is that it sort of is a way to start projects that then can continue in, in other ways. As the program reaches almost a decade in existence, members of the Food Policy Council are evaluating the money that's been spent so far. At a meeting in October, members discussed the beginning stages of the evaluation run by UW-Madison Extension. Lindsay Day Farnsworth is the program manager of the Community Food Systems Program at UW's Division of Extension. Farnsworth serves on several other food-related committees. She says assessment is important to evaluate how taxpayer money is spent. We're invested in bringing, you know, rigor and evaluation capacity, which we have to these partnerships. The city doesn't have that same kind of in-house capacity, but they want to make sure that they're allocating taxpayer dollars to programs that are putting those dollars to good use. Part of the assessment focuses on where the programs that receive funding are based within the city 
and whether that matches up with areas that have been designated by the city as food access improvement areas. These are areas that use federally determined guidelines, like having low access to a grocery store or having a population that's lower income. Nicholas Leet says... Uh, how the assessment came about is I think that they it is only $50,000, but it does add up over time. And I think we want to sort of make sure the grants are targeted in terms of priority projects as well as prior priority areas of the city and make sure all areas of the city are being served by the seed grant. In the meeting last month, Food Policy Council members looked at a map of seed grant projects and the Masia Fonkem is the Community Food Project Evaluation Assistant. Fonkem presented a map of the funded seed grants allocated across the city's districts. I think the thing that was most striking to me was how widespread food programs are in the city. They are in almost every single older district, though we are seeing a lot of projects in sort of the food access improvement districts. We are seeing projects clustered in places where, based off of narratives in the city of Madison, where you might expect. According to her presentation, the majority of the grants have been allocated in the north side, districts 18 and 12, and in the south side, district 14. Most of the projects focus on emergency food assistance and food system infrastructure, namely food banks, food pantries, community meals and one-time intervention programs. For Funkem, this fact not only rests on the number of applications, but also on the decisions of the review team and the Madison Council based on the food access improvement areas. The next thing that we sort of saw was that the most common type of project receiving funding were emergency food assistance infrastructure. Those were getting a lot of applications and a lot of approvals as something that the seed grant committee thought that the city needed. A lot of organizations are applying for money for infrastructure updates. People need more money to store more food to give it away. Fonkem emphasized that this map does not tell the full story of food insecurity in Madison. It is not able to trace if the seed grant applicants work with neighborhood resource teams. Also, the map does not reflect the area demographics that intersect in each district. This is the reason behind the design and implementation of ripple effect mapping, the second stage and cornerstone of the evaluation, as explained by Farnsworth. And the cornerstone of the evaluation is ripple effect mapping, which is a way of engaging participants and beneficiaries in identifying what the impacts of the program are and where the opportunities for improvements are. Similarly to a focus group, the ripple effect mapping sessions offer an opportunity to interview organizations, applicants and beneficiaries about the indirect impacts of the program. Josette Gauli is the Evaluation and Program Development Specialist at UW-Madison Division of Extension. For Gauli, the seed grant program is like... Throwing a rock in a pond. That's the small investment, the grants that are given, the seed grants. And we're interested in hearing from the people who receive them how that made a difference to their organization and to their clients. And so you're rippling out and, and starting to understand the system. It gets to the, the question of, of attribution. With a ripple effects mapping, you're, you're actually focused on those causal connections. And so you can say with confidence that by giving this investment, it led to X. 
Attribution is key to the development and existence of the program. Last month, alter Sabrina Madison of the city's Far East side proposed an amendment to the operating budget to add 25,000 more dollars to the seed grant project. Uh, credit the amendment kind of in sort of a last-minute idea after hearing about the increase of use of local pan- food pantries, more neighborhood-level pantries where they're seeing an increase, especially from families who are undocumented. Alder Madison has since dropped the amendment. She tells WORT that she was shifting to allocating more funding for housing complexes with no community resources or food pantries instead. What was coming up after me, an amendment or two or whatever, a few after me was one for adding $100,000 to create programming for some of the local apartment complexes that are, they're just very much um, having some challenges and the alders in those districts are wanting to provide some money to provide, you know, on-site resources and programming for those complexes because there's no community center, no food pantry. According to LEAD, the grant program requested $250,000 to fund this 2023, but only the usual $50,000 was authorized. In her analysis of the program, Fonkem emphasizes the ripple effects of this small funding source on food security in the city. I think the thing that's particularly striking to me is, in the grand scheme of a city budget, how low each project's funding source is. We're not seeing any project getting more than $10,000. And so it's these like smaller investments that are able to do some really heavy lifting in terms of, you know, infrastructure. For Farnsworth, the seed grant program is a unique opportunity to low scale but critical projects that might not have other funding sources available. Even though these grants are small, they're often for things that there aren't clear alternative funding sources for, that being particularly true for infrastructure. I think it's matching relatively small dollar amounts with these critical needs that make the difference in terms of perishability and redistribution or or distribution of food. Alter Madison tells WORT she's hoping to increase the funding sources for the seed grant program in the next CD budget in 2025. Then, she says, there will be more information from the evaluation of the program. For WORT News, I'm Diego Alegría. the federal government ended the COVID-era expansion of food stamp benefits, meaning some local families could no longer enroll in the SNAP program. WORT's David Ahrens visited River Food Pantry to learn about the effects of the cutbacks on local families. The name of the program has changed over time. It was once known as food stamps, 
the stamps became digital cards and the name changed to SNAP for Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. In Wisconsin, the program is called Food Share. But whatever it's called, it is a lifeline for 65,000 people in Dane County who depend on it for food. In March, that lifeline began to unravel. Three years ago, as the COVID epidemic crushed the economy, a minimum of $95 was added to the monthly benefit. That raised the monthly benefit to $250. The income limit to get benefits increased too, and more people qualified for the program. In Dane County, the number of recipients rose from 54,000 to 65,000 people. Even after this increase, the people in this program are so poor that they remain, in bureaucratic speak, food insecure. That means they probably don't have enough food by the end of the month. Most have no earned income. The average SNAP recipient household, their monthly income is about $800. Very few receive cash welfare. But the end of the public health emergency has meant the end of the supplement. The elderly and others who qualified for the minimum benefit will see their allotments fall from $289 per month to about 23 To get a better sense of the effects of the loss of the benefits on the people who depend on them, I visited the River Food Pantry on the north side of Madison. On an average Saturday morning, the River Food Pantry distributes food to about 150 families. When I arrived at 10 a.m. on a snowy morning, the line of cars waiting for the food pickup ran down the block and around the corner along Packers Avenue. Let's listen to a few Madisonians picking up food at the pantry. The first person is a mother of three kids. We can hear the baby in the back seat. We get the max amount of benefits right now, so we have to make a way for mm-hmm. the rest of the month. So Yeah, and the benefits alone, uh, they provide enough uh, food for you and your family? Yes, they were, yes. Uh-huh. And now that it's been reduced? Uh, um, well, now still? we're back uh, looking for pantries and extra help, so. Yeah. Um, if, if there wasn't a pantry, what do you think the situation would be? Um, probably smaller meals, um, smaller amounts. I mean, the food uh, price is really high, so I'm not really sure where we would turn. So, mm-hmm. so this is essential, uh, the, your pickup at the uh, River Pantry today? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing help. So. Yeah. Um, or do you know other people who are in the same kind of uh, situation as you? Yes, I do. Um, sometimes they tend to use um, MOM, uh, that's Middleton Outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the few, or maybe like St. Vinny's. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, now since um, the reduction, it, um, they're utilizing those resources as well. So mm-hmm. okay. no, thank you. Next, we'll hear from a mother with a few teenagers in her car who doesn't qualify for food share because she says she's lower middle class. But food costs have skyrocketed 10% in less than a year, and she can't feed her family. Hi, well, my story is the fact that I work more than one job, and I'm raising all of these kids alone. And um, because of that, with you know, they look at your gross. So what you're grossing, they're saying like, oh, no, we can't help you. 
so like you have to depend on like the food pantries and stuff like that like there you're not bringing home that money that you gross you know what i mean especially yeah. after taking out taxes and everything you mm -hmm. know so you know it would be helpful if you know snap could be available for middle what they consider middle class even though you don't feel like middle class because tremendously come on now on the on every other week you can go in the grocery store and ground beef will be what like you get two pounds of ground beef and then you spend it over like 20 some dollars yeah you know and when you got a family of seven uh -huh. that's a lot to stretch you know yeah. what i mean and and then like you can't go vegan or anything like that because that stuff costs way too much too you know so it's like you can't you can only afford to get like potato chips and you know sweets and things like that all the stuff they tell us don't put in our bodies you know keep going up on the um prices even on like a, you used to can go to like pick and save and get like a two for ten chicken you get like 16 pieces of fried chicken mm -hmm. for ten dollars now it's up to thirteen dollars you know what i mean which is still like not bad but at the same time like you know like this is the type of stuff we have to depend on like yeah mm. everybody's asking for money everybody's asking for food you know like when somebody asks for food you know i don't care what they look like don't just assume that um that they're alcoholic or wherever you've seen them in their time they need some food you know what i mean food we need substance and libation to live so like just give them food you know what i mean like yeah. even if you don't give them the money just go in there and pay for it and give it to them because like it's serious out here like people are willing to kill for a pack of meat you know what i mean so mm -hmm. and that's and that's terrible you know but this is what economy, this is what happens yeah. today finally we'll hear from a mother who was driven to the pantry by a friend her income is seven hundred dollars per month and gets three hundred dollars to feed her family that's less than three dollars per day per person we've been having to resource food stamps or food pantries and um sometimes go without we are also homeless right now so pantries are really great around madison um, if those get taken away we'd be really in trouble um, enough food i have kids and unfortunately sometimes kids can be a little choosy on what they eat so um i sometimes go without eating and just let my kids eat the food stamp production is really hurting us i've been on a wait list for a shelter for over a month with uh, no car and children out on the street the income and food assistance provided during the three-year COVID epidemic resulted in the biggest decrease in child poverty in history. For many poor people, they may look back on the pandemic as the best of days. This has been David Ahrens for WORT News. Democrats argue that universal, no-cost school meals would help address food insecurity across Wisconsin. Earlier this month, they announced that they will be reintroducing legislation to make that happen. I attended that press conference. 
and have the details on the latest effort to guarantee that all Wisconsin students have access to free, healthy school meals. During the pandemic, the federal government funded meals, at no cost, for all students regardless of their family's income. The program was developed in order to address nationwide food insecurity, as many folks lost their jobs and students had to attend school online. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Wisconsin school districts participated in the program with just a few exceptions. After the federal funding ended last year, nine states individually passed legislation to continue free meals for all students. Wisconsin attempted to join that cohort, but the bill did not pass. Now, Democratic lawmakers are making a second attempt to pass the program, which they estimate would cost about $120 million. Under the bill, the Department of Public Instruction would use state funds to pay the expenses not covered under the Truman-era National School Lunch Program and the National School Breakfast Program, which dates back to 1966. Currently, the DPI covers only a percentage of that funding gap, offering reimbursements according to the number of meals served during the prior school year. Representative Francesca Hong is a Democrat from Madison, who's made food access and equity a core part of her platform. She says there are three tenets to this bill. First, to ensure that there is a free lunch and breakfast for every student. Second, to shorten the food supply chain and support local farmers. Third, to support the food service workers in schools through higher wages and increased benefits. We are here to say we should be banning hunger and not banning books. Democratic lawmakers presented the bill this morning alongside Madison-area students and representatives from the Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition, a partnership between dozens of local organizations. Bobby Gayette is the president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin, one of the members of the coalition. Studies show that meals served in schools are the healthiest option of nourishment to children, and that research also shows that nutrition is directly related to academic achievement. Research aside, we can all agree that food is the energy that helps our bodies function. And how vitally important is this for children in a school day? She also says that healthy meals should be considered vital tools for education, just like desks, internet access, and teachers. Yet the meals required to be served in schools are done so with only a means-tested approach, which assess the financial status of a household and yet put a child in a physical situation that may result in inequity or shame. Caitlin Tarianen is the president-elect of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. Studies have shown that approximately 25% of the students in Wisconsin don't qualify for free or reduced meals but they also don't have enough money to come to school with a healthy lunch they brought from home. As a result, many districts throughout the state have significant school meal debt, a cost that's incurred by school nutrition funding, which is taking away from opportunities for additional staffing, higher quality food, or equipment for the kitchen. Michael Gasper is the director of nutrition from Holman School District. He says that while Holman is fairly well off, with about 28% of its students receiving free and reduced meals, they still come across students that are not covered and cannot afford the expense. But I was standing by the cashier at our high school and this young man approached me and he said, sir, can you do me a favor? Can you, can you check and see how much money I have in my account before I eat lunch? He was definitely afraid that somebody was gonna take his meal away or something to that nature. And so we looked and he was about $25 negative in his account. And 
he said, please, if, if you'll just let me eat today, I promise I picked up an extra shift at work tonight, I will bring money in tomorrow, I promise. And I want you to think about that for a second, because here's a kid whose parent could afford to pay for his meal, but for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, chose not to. And that is certainly not that young man's fault. Though a similar bill failed to pass in March of last year due to a lack of bipartisan support, Democratic lawmakers, like Representative Kristen Shelton of Green Bay, say they're hopeful that their Republican colleagues will respond more favorably this time around. We're very lucky that Speaker Voss just this fall launched his task force on childhood obesity. There has been numerous conversations in that task force about school meals. So we see this as a real opportunity right now to continue to build momentum and truly have bipartisan support on a bill that will have significant benefits for all Wisconsinites. Governor Tony Evers added a free school meals policy and an increase in state breakfast reimbursement in his 2023 to 2025 biennial budget. But the Joint Committee on Finance removed both in May of this year. Earlier this summer, the Healthy School Meals for All Coalition and UW-Madison professor Jennifer Gaddis released the first statewide survey of the Wisconsin school nutrition workforce. That report found that of the approximately 5,089 K-12 school nutrition workers across the state, 94% were women and 88% were white. It also found that four out of five school food workers who were not managers worked part-time and that a quarter of schools across the state offered poverty-level starting wages for school nutrition workers. And only one school district in the state, Madison Metro School District, provided a job with a livable wage. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. In September, a public affairs host, Douglas Haynes, spoke to Jennifer Gaddis, author of Hungry for Good Jobs, the state of the school nutrition workforce in Wisconsin, along with Michael Gasper, who contributed to that report. They discussed school nutrition and the issues facing school nutrition workers. Thanks for coming back to a public affair, Jennifer. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Doug. And we also have with us Michael Gasper, who's the director of school nutrition for the Holman School District and was twice president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. He's also a member of the board of directors of the National School Nutrition Association. Welcome to a public affair, Mike. Glad to be here, Douglas. Uh, thanks for having me. Sure. We're glad to have you both, and we're happy to dive into this important issue and this new report. Jennifer, we'll start with you and just tell us a little bit about this report, the groups that produced it, and what your aims for publishing it are. Sure. So this was a really collaborative effort um, from people across the state of Wisconsin, not only um, the group that Mike um, has been a part of previously, the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin, but also the Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition that involves um, over 80 different groups across the state of Wisconsin. So originally this group really formed because um, as many of your listeners may remember, um, school meals were actually free to all students for about two years during the pandemic. And so when it became clear that the US federal government was going to return to having school meals be free, reduced price or paid um, as in pre-pandemic times, uh, a lot of statewide advocacy um, not only in Wisconsin, but in states across um, the United States, uh, really started to bubble up. And here in Wisconsin, our coalition included um, 
really wonderful school nutrition directors such as Mike, um, who said, you know, we are having issues um, in our program, not only as we anticipate this return to this old model of not being able to serve um, all students free of charge, but also um, with issues of recruitment and retention that um, were certainly present before the pandemic, but have become worsened um, during this time uh, by some of the instability of the pandemic that was certainly not affecting only school nutrition programs, but you know, it impacted like the economy more broadly. So we decided to do a statewide study that would really um, try to profile not only the current state of the school nutrition workforce, but some of the kinds of inequities and challenges that anecdotally people thought were true, but that we really wanted to gather more robust data on. So for example, um, Mike um, and myself, and actually two of our elected officials, Francesca Hong and um, Christina Shelton, who's the representative from Green Bay, um, along with a really wonderful graduate student, Sarah Trongone from the sociology department, and Bobby Guyette, who's the current president of um, SNA Wisconsin, um, we formed a um, subgroup of our Healthy School Meals for All coalition that was really focused on these issues of labor, wages, and compensation. And we worked um, with um, all of our members to kind of think through um, what is the information that we want to gather and how can we best um, really get input from people across the state. So we were able to get um, input from over 25% of schools across the state of Wisconsin. And we also did several listening sessions or focus groups with school nutrition directors, as well as managers and hourly staff for this report. And we wanted to be able to show not only what wages and benefit levels and things like that look like, um, but also some of the challenges that I think people don't always realize. So sometimes people might think of this as like a low wage occupation, but they might not know that most people who work in school nutrition programs are only employed for nine months out of the year and that most of the jobs are part time. We found in our survey that four out of five hourly positions um, are part time. So those kinds of things make it to where uh, people who work in school nutrition and profession um, actually have a much lower annual take-home pay. So we wanted to be able to show some of those things, um, but also investigate some of the kinds of things that um, we kind of suspected to be true. Um, for example, like the wage gap between um, school nutrition workers who are almost um, almost all women, it's over 90% women who work in this industry versus um, custodial workers, for instance, who are mostly men. So those are some of the things we were hoping to do in this report, as well as to document some of the places um, that we would call high road employers. So places where they have unusually high wages or um, benefit levels so that we can sort of understand um, why are there some districts that are able to do a little bit better within the current system, but also what are the limits of our current system um, so that, you know, even those that are kind of doing the best in the current circumstances, um, what are they still struggling with? Mike, you have an inspiring story of one of those there in Holman, one of those initiatives that people get excited about when we talk about school nutrition, farm to table and local sourcing. Tell us about your school apple orchard there in Holman. You bet. Well, you know, four years ago, we, we got a, uh, uh, a message from an anonymous donor that they had 80 um, apple trees that they wanted to donate to our district. So I worked together with our egg teacher at the time, Roger King, um, and we uh, devised a plan to build a deer fence. Um, we have a wonderful hill um, behind one of our elementary schools that's southern facing, so it's perfect 
for an orchard. So um, he brought his students up there. They built a fantastic deer fence. And then um, we brought up kids from the elementary school that the property is on. And uh, they came up and we worked with them on planting the trees. And since then, they've had various ag students come up there and help prune the trees and, and you know, work the grounds a little bit. Um, but it usually takes three to four years before you actually get a harvest out of apple trees. Um, we expect to get around five to $6,000 worth of apples um, out of our orchard uh, that's been student-run. And we're actually having some of those same children that planted those trees four years ago when they were in uh, kindergarten, first grade, uh, are going to be back up there tomorrow on Wednesday helping us harvest that along with some egg students from the high school. So um, very exciting. And that's the kind of thing that can happen when um, school nutrition programs work collaboratively um, with their science department, their egg department. You know, we also have a hydroponic operation in our, at our high school um, where they grow lettuce for our programs. We also have um, what's called a flex farm. It's an individual hydroponic unit in all of our schools that grow herbs that we use in our recipes. In previous years, we've managed to raise chickens, pigs, cows um, that we've used in our program. Currently, we're buying from two local farms, both pork and beef. So, you know, there's a lot that can happen in your school program if it's funded correctly and you have support from your administration. Uh, so it's really important, I think, to people to understand the cost of these things. And, you know, right now we're getting some great national grants uh, for local pro food purchasing. The problem is those things are one-time deals. You know, so it helps. You get $20,000, you spend it on local purchases. But that doesn't really help much for next year. You know, and, and that's why the, um, you know, funding of school nutrition programs is so important. Um, the reimbursement rates that we're getting right now are actually less than they were last year. Um, and that's concerning going forward because, again. Um, Just sorry, Mike, tell book, us a little bit about what you mean by reimbursement rates. Yeah, I'm sorry. Every, every school lunch that we serve, as long as we serve the necessary components, is reimbursed by the government, including paid lunches. Now, a lot of people think that, well, I paid for my kids' lunch. Well, you didn't actually pay for all of it because we do get a reimbursement for every single lunch that we serve. Um, and we get it at, at a certain rate. Um, uh, and when that – it's really probably the main source of funding for most school nutrition programs. You know, granted, there's some more revenue that occurs from all the card sales, catering sales that you might have, um, outside programs you might serve. Um but not every district has those either. So, um, again, it's the main source of, of funding. You know, those five components, we have to serve a fruit, we have to serve a vegetable, we have to serve a, a meat or a meat alternative, otherwise known as a protein, um, a grain, and then uh, fluid milk. Uh, so, again, uh, it's very specific. We have to meet certain guidelines as far as calories, sodium, fat. There's a lot that goes into this. And, and again, when it's not funded correctly, it can really – cause other issues where, you know, you're forced to not pay as much as you would for labor, perhaps, and then that causes you to have to buy more convenience-type items because you don't have um, the skill level necessary to, to do scratch cooking, which is why this uh, report, I believe, is, is so very important, not only here in Wisconsin, but really nationwide. Tell us about how you overcame some of those obstacles there in Holman, Mike. What allowed you to create that apple orchard and all that other local sourcing and hydroponics that you mentioned? You know, first, I want to credit my staff. I, I think the staff that I have on hand here is is definitely unique. They're very hardworking, very caring individuals willing to do whatever it takes to get 
our kids fed here in Holman. Um, when COVID hit, we found out, I believe it was late on a Friday, that we were not going to have school on Monday. And we were there on Saturday meeting um, to decide how we were going to feed these kids. You know, they they just very giving on their time. So that that's one component. Um, and I believe there's, there's districts like that across the state with those kinds of people. Um, the rest of it's a lot of hard work, to be real honest with you, you know, seeking out funding opportunities, grants, those kinds of things that you can find that will help fund your program. Um, we also feed a great deal of uh, the County of La Crosse uh, Senior Dining Program, everything except the City of La Crosse pretty much, um, which brings extra revenue into our program um, that we can turn around and invest into it. Um, and again, not every district has that opportunity. Um, we also feed a, a parochial school uh, to bring in extra revenue and a uh, YMCA daycare. So we've we've worked pretty hard to establish a good uh, baseline of revenue so we can invest back into our program. I think most programs want to do these things, but most programs don't have necessary funds behind it to do those things. Dr. Jennifer Gaddis is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison. Thanks for coming on to Public Affair again, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. And Mike Gasper is director of school nutrition for the Holman School District and was twice president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. And, and, and real quick, I just want to say to people listening, if you get a chance, visit your school nutrition program. I'll guarantee it is not what you remember. Uh, it's not your uh, father's school nutrition program anymore. It's way different. Uh, you're going to see some really cool things. Last week, Congress finally agreed to extend the 2018 Farm Bill for another year. While Congress was still waffling over the U.S. Farm Bill, I spoke to Pete Hardin. He's the editor of The Milkweed, a dairy industry watchdog that he publishes on a monthly basis. Hardin says that the Farm Bill could more accurately be called the Food and Farm Bill, and that lawmakers need to shift their focus to the environment and food security nationwide. Thank you for joining me, Pete. Good to be with you. I, I'm a big fan of Wart. So the farm bill is renewed every five years. How does this process normally go? Well, long ago, somebody said there are two things you should not watch being made, sausage and laws. And I think that continues pretty accurately. First of all, you know, we in this conversation and in general conversations on this subject, we call it the farm bill. But I would argue that that's a bit of a misnomer. I think we ought to more appropriately call it the food and farm bill because roughly 80 percent of the actual working budgets go towards nutrition programs. It's really a food and farm program. I think that's an important basis to keep in mind for talking purposes. In several recent years, the Farm Bill has 
run over its allotted lifetime and the programs were continued on a temporary basis until the new farm bill could be achieved. And unfortunately, recent farm bill events have seen too frequently a very narrow vote in favor of the ultimate product passed by legislators who were running out the door to uh, go on vacation. So it's a delay, 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 and then hurry up and vote vote yes or no and let's go home kind of process. I would really argue that proper deliberation of our food and farm policies would deserve better consideration than some of those end results. I'd say the odds are about 98% that a new farm bill will not be fashioned by the end of the year, and therefore there will be an extension of the existing programs Since 24 is a delicate election year, both in the legislature and for the White House, politicians may not be willing to make certain tough, hard choices that they've talked about up to this point. And one of the alternatives is a mere, merely a five-year extension of the existing farm bill, which would, you know, be status quo, right or wrong. I think the uh, accumulation of external factors affecting both food production and consumers' economics. We're in a new world, and I'm not sure the same old, same old is necessarily going to be most appropriate, but it might be better than nothing. (laughs) And can you explain how exactly the farm bill affects dairy prices? (laughs) Milk pricing is so complex. We have, for example, two or three different increasingly sophisticated programs that dairy farmers may voluntarily contract with USDA to give them some sort of, uh, call it milk price insurance. There are two or three different uh, programs. I don't want to get into the alphabet soup of their names for your listeners. I'll I'll spare them that. But uh, that's a main one. But you also have significant purchases of, as a matter of public policy, significant purchases of dairy commodities, be it mozzarella cheese, gallons of milk, all kinds of nutrition programs here, which ultimately go to boost dairy product demand and help sustain farmers' prices. Every month in some of the the industry uh, weekly papers, you read You know, the government wants to buy 40 million pounds of cheddar cheese or processed cheese or mozzarella cheese, you know, for nutrition programs. So uh, with roughly 80% of the budget in the farm and food bill going towards nutrition programs, they are a key component. But the, the beneficiaries include not only the farmers, but also the members of the public who are, are getting this uh, nutrition. And, and sometimes these programs are designed for export purposes for food assistance. And, you know, one of my one of my growly thoughts in recent weeks has been, we look at the carnage in the Middle East and realize that these people are going to need food and yet it has to be the right food, and uh, we have the food resources, but uh, where's the discussion about food aid to the folks in the Middle East who are being so dramatically displaced? Before I let you go, I was wondering if you would like to tell us about some of the main topics you explore in your latest edition of The Milkweed. Can I, can I sort of switch on you a little bit? Yeah, of course. What I'd like to do is just throw out a few ideas about what I'd like to see in the farm bill in terms of increased uh, emphasis. For starters, 
emphasize local food to the greatest degree possible. You know, the average bite of food in the Midwest has traveled roughly 1,500 miles from where it was grown or hatched to where it's ultimately consumed, and that's that's pretty absurd. But you take everything from weather events to energy costs to uh, other types of supply chain disruptions, I think the only rational policies we can emphasize would start with local food production to the greatest degree possible, including community-supported agriculture projects, community gardens, reducing food waste, backyard gardening, and, and fence row agriculture. So that's one area I feel very strongly about. And secondly, what we need to do in the extended Mississippi River Basin, you know, from the Missouri River to the Ohio River, is increase federal programs to increase the organic matter in soil. Every 1% increase in soil organic matter adds moisture holding capacity of 16,000 gallons per acre. Again, 1% more organic matter in the soil plus 16,000 gallons of moisture holding capacity per acre. That's about the equivalent of three great big milk trailers. With Mother Nature increasingly being either too dry or too wet, uh, if we can capture the moisture and hold it in the soil, there'll be not only drought remediation, but also flood remediation. I think that's really, really, really critical. Now, I think we need to also finally look hard at so-called green federal expenditures because in the dairy industry, there's a big program through uh, jointly through USDA and the Energy Department to uh, basically give farmers free methane digesters, whereby the methane from dairy herds of over 3,000 cows is captured and burned, and uh, the heat is from the burning is utilized one way or another. But the downside is that combustion of methane produces CO2, carbon dioxide, as a byproduct, and CO2 has an environmental shelf life of roughly 550 years on average. So I would much rather see us emphasizing composting of manure for, and grazing, you know, grazing and composting as opposed to the big ticket publicly funded items like, like methane digesters. We need to really look hard at what's true green and what's dirty green, in, in my opinion. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Pete. Sure. You have a good day and I appreciate the opportunity. That was Pete Hardin, a local journalist whose monthly report, The Milkweed, keeps a close eye on the dairy industry. The day the music died And they were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys were drinking
local nonprofit, the Madison Area Food Pantry Gardens, has already taken steps to implement sustainable farming practices. Last April, I visited their recently purchased Forward Garden. They supply produce to dozens of food pantries across Dane County, relying on volunteers to keep the gardens running smoothly. Nestled in the sprawling fields in the outer limits of Verona is Forward Garden, a 15-acre piece of land recently bought by Madison Area Food Pantry Gardens, a local nonprofit that grows vegetables for local food pantries. Over the past two decades, Madison Area Food Pantry Gardens has produced more than 2.2 million pounds of produce for dozens of food pantries across Dane County. The organization bought Forward Garden, located next to Pope Farm Conservancy in 2020. It's now the organization's largest piece of land. Nine other gardens, spread out across Dane County, are also part of the network. Here in Forward Garden, on a sunny April morning, spring has arrived. Planting has begun in earnest, and the garden is bustling with volunteers. And plans are in motion to bring more sustainable farming initiatives to Forward Garden. Farm manager Matt Leckmeyer says the purchase has opened a new frontier for the produce that they can grow. We've been focusing on mixed annual vegetables because we've only had an annual lease that we've had to renew each year and we haven't known if we're going to be there the next year. So the last thing you want to do is put thousands of dollars into an orchard, for example, and not see a return on that investment. But now we're able to. Leckmeyer says now that they own the land, they're planning to bring an expanded composting program to the property. When I think about sustainability, I think about the, the resources you need to, to create your product, right? So that's water and that's soil. We're harvesting about 30,000 pounds of produce and taking it off-site each season, and so we have to replenish the nutrients. Those are, those are removing from the site. Um, we've been fertilizing with synthetic fertilizer up until recently, and now we're putting together a project where we can compost our weed scraps. Compost is also really useful in increasing organic matter, which is... Um, lacking here on the property. Um, so we want to increase the organic matter and that, what that does is makes the ground more spongy and it can absorb more moisture and hold the moisture longer for the plants to access. They're also changing up their irrigation practices to be more efficient. There's lots of ways of, of conveying that water to your plants. Um, some are more efficient than others and so drip irrigation is what we're focused on doing and so that we can deliver the water to the roots of the plants we want to grow versus watering broadly and, and supporting weeds as well. Dr. Brian Arndt is a board member with the organization and a family physician. Dr. Arndt explained that reliable access to produce for lower income individuals and families is instrumental to a healthy diet. So in my um, care of folks with chronic conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity, I really coach a lot on adequate produce consumption. And unfortunately at this point, only about 1 in 11 or 1 in 12 people with low income consume the recommended uh, 4 to 5 servings of fruits and vegetables per day. And so in my role as a family physician as well as an organization like this, I've been thinking about how can we improve produce access to first choice, fresh, culturally relevant produce for the folks that need it most. Jane Mount, in addition to being a volunteer, is also a board member. She touts the organization's commitment to accessibility and catering specifically to communities in need. We actually um, did a survey with all of our food pantries because Madison is such a culturally diverse community and we wanted to make sure that we were providing food for people that they really wanted, that they could use, and food that they might not be able to get at uh, the farmer's market or, or a, a food pantry. Mount wanted WORT listeners to know that all volunteers of any ability or level of commitment can have an impact.
we welcome families to come out. Um, we welcome anybody of any age and abilities. There's always something to do on the farm. You know, some people would um, need to sit and do some things, um, but we also have people who want to plant potatoes and that's really hard work. Um, so a variety of things. I also love that you meet so many new people when you're out here. And being out, you know, working the earth is amazing and all for the purpose of feeding your neighbor. The organization accepts volunteers at all locations, such as Anderson Farm Center in Oregon and Lacey Garden in Fitchburg. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. And that does it for our Thanksgiving show. We thank you for joining us. We've been listening to a collection of this year's stories on food. Special thanks to our reporters, Sarah Gabler, Diego Alegria, and David Ahrens. And thanks to feature contributor Douglas Haynes. Shelly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I've been your host, Faye Parks. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast, which you can find on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Perpetual Notion Machine. Happy Thanksgiving.